Um, I've had a bit of a cold this week, and one of the privileges that comes along with being sick in my household is I finally get a chance to watch the films that my wife won't watch with me. Uh, and so usually they involve aliens, uh, and sometimes that's a bad mistake. And so in 20, 2015 or 2014, I had a really bad flu, and I decided it was a good time to watch District 9. That was a mistake. Uh, but what this meant this time is that I sat down and watched Arrival, um, which if you haven't seen it is a really moving film and it wasn't what I expected at all. Um, and when I get sick, uh, I get incredibly emotionally vulnerable. Whatever this defense mechanism that is me kind of shuts down. Uh, and I was literally sitting in my tub sobbing at the end of the movie, which is not something I can remember doing in, in memory. Uh, that's, that's how vulnerable I was. But if you, if you haven't seen the film, um, effectively, you get this creeping suspicion the whole time of what's actually going on. Uh, and so you see it coming, and then it, when it comes, it hits you harder, not less. In fact, that's one of the major themes of the film, is that seeing what's coming doesn't make navigating those things any easier. Um, it... It hit me because, um, because I was suddenly imagining a different future for myself. I was putting myself in the shoes of the author and looking forward and knowing what was coming changes the way we interpret life now. And I had the same experience this morning. I know what I have to say this morning. And that changed how I heard every aspect of the service this morning because I could see this thread weaving through everything, what Gina shared and what Willie shared and even what Nick shared with communion um, that touches on what we're going to talk about this morning, which is effectively perspective. For the next three weeks, we're going to be working in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, talking about an eternal perspective. And what we have to recognize this morning is, is that perspective is a natural part of life. We all look at the same life, we look at the same facts, we look at things in our lives, but naked facts, brute force facts, don't give meaning. They come through a lens, they're interpreted, and that's what gives them meaning, and that comes from our perspective, okay? That's why people can see the same event and come up with different interpretations of it, because they stand in different places. What I want to point out to you this morning is that a large part of perspective is future-oriented, okay? Oftentimes, we call it hope. The way that we look at our life as we live it in the midst of life is determined by where we believe life to be going. And this is true not just of Christians, not just of the religious or the spiritual. This is a vital aspect of human life. We all live in a story not yet finished and have to answer what the story means. That's quite the predicament, okay? All of us are aware that there might be a Shyamalan twist at the end, okay? But we can't live without meaning, and so we set a point on the horizon. And the thing that I think we often get wrong about hope is that hope is not merely just looking forward. Hope is always looking forward and then from that place looking back and interpreting what is. Hope always does that. Hope is not just a longing for things to go rightly. It's a significance that gives meaning to the events we're currently going through. And what I want you to understand this morning is all of you operate under hope. 
All of you set those horizons. All of you have a place, a point that says, this is what interprets the now. This shapes the highs and lows, the hardships. This tells me when to run and when to fight. This tells me what's worth it and what's not. Gina shared out of the weight of glory, which is actually one of C.S. Lewis's sermons on the passage we're going to read this morning. And I would be lying if I didn't say I was tempted just to read that and send you home because it's a wonderful sermon. But when she, uh, when she read that we as human beings are far too easily pleased because we settle for these things when God offers us something different, that's what we're talking about. What's wrong with these things? What's wrong with sex and drink and ambition? Nothing. Unless we bring in some perspective. The place that Paul, our author, writes from this morning, as you may remember from earlier in the letter, is a place of severe hardship and difficulty. The things he says and the way he sees those hardships and difficulty come from a perspective. Even if you are nihilistic, even if you believe that at the end of life there is nothing, you take that nothingness and you read it back into this life and it determines the way you live now. It's effectively despair plus happy gas, okay? It's anesthetized despair. It's let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Why eat, drink, and be merry now? Why take all the pleasure we can get now? Why, why do we ask questions today like the modern translation of eat, drink, and be merry, like turn down for what, okay? All of those are rooted on where is the story going? Where is it ending? And my concern for us, and this is not a concern I have about you, it's a concern I have about us. It's a thread that I find in my own heart. My concern is that we constantly, constantly don't push the horizon far enough. That we constantly choose our point of measurement too close. That we set horizons that we will easily reach and there will still be life left. What I'm saying to you this morning is where is your ultimate point of perspective? What is the point, the line in the sand, the finish line that determines everything? Because in our life, we'll have lots of penultimate hopes. Retirement, family, achieving what we're looking for in work, finally finishing that degree, accomplishing something significant in life. But then what? All of those things have the ability to drive you. But the problem is, so many of us set that benchmark on the practical everyday level. I know what we believe as Christians, but the way we live as Christians, where is your horizon? Where is your destination? Practically, for many of us, it's before the day we die. And Paul and the New Testament and Jesus always put it after that. So open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you'll find one in the pew right in front of you. It's the black one. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament, and the Bible has an index in the front that will help you find it. And we're going to be in chapter 4. Read with me just these three verses this morning at the end of chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us some perspective this morning. All of us inherently as human beings are interpreters. We take the brute facts of our life and the world as we know it, and we interpret them to give a sense of meaning, to tell us what the story is about. But we all, even if we know what the story is about as Christians, we all struggle from mission creep. We all struggle from distraction. We all struggle from being, as C.S. Lewis said, far too easily pleased and settling. And so I pray, Lord, that you would recalibrate our lives this morning around where we're going, around what we're becoming, around the ultimate consequence of what you've done in Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen. As you can imagine, the New Testament says a lot about hope. But it speaks about that hope in a different way than modern English does, and we need to own up to that right now, this morning. Oftentimes, in modern English, hope is synonymous with wish. I hope I get into this college. I hope I get the job. I hope it's a boy. Okay? The New Testament actually says that the hope that it talks about is unshakable, assured, guaranteed. It's different than just a wish. It's different than just a desire. It's different than just a longing. And the reason for that is because of something in the past. Our hope is unshakable because of what happened in the past. You see, as Christians, our lives are suspended between two events, the first coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And the first one, and what was accomplished there, shapes and validates and proves and assures what will be. In fact, notice what Paul has just finished saying prior to verse 16. He says this in chapter 4, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised, past tense, the Lord Jesus, will raise us also, future tense, with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul says, these two things I know. These are the facts that shape the lens of Paul's understanding of the in-between. He says, I know that there is a resurrection coming because Jesus has been resurrected. And so the hope that we're talking about is not just the desire or the imaginary future that we paint for ourselves. It's the consequence of what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Now, notice what he says here in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Now, technically, he's repeating that phrase. It's a common and primary theme in these chapters. It's how he began all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Okay? Another synonymous way of saying this is we do not faint 
or we do not give up. You see, Paul's trying to help the Corinthian church understand that his ministry, albeit it is not always beautiful and it is always difficult, is not something that causes him to tap out. It's not something that causes him to give up. He is, uh, he is not going um, to lose heart because he's assured of these things, because he has this perspective. And so the primary lens that Paul looks this morning at this hope, at this eternal perspective, has to do with suffering. But I think it's important for us to realize that that's not the only thing it addresses. And so we're going to expand the boundaries of that a little bit more this morning. We will talk about suffering. But what I really want to do is help us to set the right place, the right finish line, um, to give us perspective, the right future, so that we properly understand our present. Let me give you one more illustration of how this works. Have you ever seen the survey teams of Seattle out there? Right? They're trying to understand the road, and so to do so, they set up a reference point at the end of the road, at the place of their measuring, and then they measure the potholes and the grade uh, and the problems against that final destination. As Paul shapes our final destination this morning, he makes primarily contrasts, the inner man and the outer man, the sufferings now, the glory to come, the seen and the unseen. In fact, he'll go on to do that next week and the week following. What he's trying to help us do is shape perspective. And so let's look at these pieces one by one. Again, in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, it's important to recognize here that when he refers to the outer man or the outer self and the inner man or the inner self, he's talking about both of them being us. Okay? And so it's not that the real me is on the inside and the outer me is merely a husk. But there is something different going on here. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of reading the picture of Dorian Gray, um, but it is by far one of Oscar Wilde's most thought-provoking works, which is saying something, because he was a tremendous writer. And in it, Dorian Gray, who is uh, a young man with dreams and ambitions, gets a portrait taken, and he looks at this portrait and he goes, you know what, for the rest of my life, this portrait will be as beautiful and young and pristine, but all of the realities of life, this body will bear. And he says, I would give my soul for this painting to bear the marks of the life I live and for me to be the one untouched. And lo and behold, that's what begins to happen. And so as he lives his life and chooses a life of just extreme whatever goes, as an aesthetic, as somebody who believes in just uh, the joys of life, nothing seems to happen. He lives a life without any consequence. His face bears no wrinkles of the worry. His body bears none of the consequences of pursuing the life that he's leading, but the portrait, unbeknownst to him because he hides it away, begins to bear all those marks. And it's, it, the reason it's a striking story is because at the end of the story, he sees the portrait. He sees how awful and ugly it is, and the spell is broken. 
and suddenly he bears all of that and he drops down dead. But for him, it's the outer self that bears no marks of the reality even though the inner self is decaying and corrupting, what Paul talks about here is moving in the opposite trajectory. He says, externally, what's going on is a downward spiral. But internally, it doesn't measure up to that. Now, once again, we need to be clear about what Paul is not saying. Notice he doesn't say that the outer self is wasting away and the inner self is the only thing that matters. We often, when we read these passages in the New Testament, go too far in contrasting the physical with the spiritual, bringing in a Greek intellectual understanding of the soul as trapped and confined in the body. In fact, the modern version of it may surprise you. The primary way we talk about these things right now is that the real me is somewhere inside and needs to be expressed, needs to be known, needs to be shown that that's the real me. But notice that Paul doesn't just say the inner you needs to be expressed or shown. He says it needs to be renewed. Okay? As Christians, we understand that, yes, our bodies are fallen, and so there's such a thing as cancer. There's such a thing as infertility. There's such a thing uh, as death and corruption. But we also understand that the inner man is fallen as well, that our heart and our will Our desires, our emotions, our ambitions, all of those things are not left untouched by the reality of sin in our lives. And so what he's talking about here is not, don't worry about the outside because the outside doesn't matter. It's in Jesus Christ, all things are becoming new and it begins on the inside. But when we get to the finish line, the outside isn't left out of the picture. If you want to see this for yourself, sometime take the time to read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, and he basically says, if you want to understand what's coming in the resurrection, think for a moment like a seed and a plant. They share an identity, but in physical form, they're not identical. In fact, if you don't know what the seed is, you don't know what the mature plant will look like. But that destiny is encoded in the seed itself. Inside every acorn is the destiny of an oak tree. Even though they look completely different, an acorn is small and insignificant and smooth, and an oak tree is large and strong. And so what he's saying here is not, don't worry about the outer man passing away because the inner man will last. It's that the life that is begun in Jesus Christ inside you will bear fruit outside, that the seed that is sown will grow into life, that the perfection going on internally in you with the changing of your heart, your mind, and your will will be completed in the day of Jesus Christ in a new body that fits that reality. But nonetheless, it's perspectival. It's hope. He says, despite the fact that when we look at life, the outer man, as we experience it, faces difficulty and decay and destruction, is prone to suffering and persecution. The inner man is stronger in life than it was yesterday. The inner man is growing in power. The inner man is being shaped and renewed and refreshed 
and made new. Remember that Paul is experiencing this wasting away, not in the general, natural aspects of aging, but in the fact that his body is a tool in the hands of his enemies. He knows what it's like to be tortured, what it's like to be abused. You see, the thing is, without perspective, pain often shapes our decisions. And this is totally natural. It's natural as human beings to remove ourselves from pain. In fact, that's part of the purpose that pain serves. We need to know that our hand is sitting on a hot burner. Okay? And so we pull our hand away. And that's how it should work. But not all pain leads to death. Not all pain causes destruction. In fact, some pain is essential for health. This is seen, as I often illustrate, in exercise. Clearly, it's seen in surgery. It's recognized in the fact that many of us try very hard to accomplish things that we desire because we believe they will be life-giving. It comes back to hope again. And so when Paul looks at this, he recognizes that his outer man doesn't just bear the marks of age or the natural natural second law of thermodynamics that things fall apart. They bear scars. His body bears injuries. Maybe he walks with a limp because his leg has been broken. He says all those things are true. And the Corinthian church is looking at that and they're going... Where's the glory of Jesus' ministry? Paul, you don't look so good. You look like you've gone, you know, uh, 13 rounds. You look like you've been devastated and destroyed. Is this really the good life? Is this the abundant life that Jesus talked about? And so he doesn't just make this contrast between the inner man and the outer man. But before we move on, consider this with me. Do you look at what's going on inside you as a Christian? Do you recognize the change and the growth there? Have you experienced the renewing of the inner man that Paul talks about here? That the things that used to burden you and bring you guilt, enslave you and enchain you, are changing? Do you find in yourself that the despair that you had before Jesus, the frustration is being slowly replaced with joy? When you understand that thing, you start to understand that as we all experience it, life is a journey. And one of the things that confirms the destination we're headed towards is the steps we take in that direction. But don't look in your bodies. Don't look in your circumstances. Jesus, once again, using this metaphor of a seed, he says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Jesus looked at all of the life of following him, all of ministry, and he said it's all a form of death. It's all a constant cycle of death and renewal. It's all Friday to lead to Sunday. It's all crucifixion to lead to resurrection. But the way that that plays out is part of this perspective because 
we can trust and entrust that what he has began in us, be it small, be it invisible, be it minor in its progress and internal and therefore to some degree unknown to others, he will be faithful to complete. What he's been working in you will work out to the fullness of a body untinged by sin and selfishness and suffering. If you want to understand the future that Paul is looking forward to, of course, we can always turn to the book of Revelation. I just want to give you a glimpse this morning. This is what Paul says. In chapter 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Read beautiful. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so with this being said, he says in verse 17, back in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice here, there's once again two things in contrast, two things in tension. Affliction now, glory then. Now, he could have written this differently. He could have said, for the light momentary glory that we experience now is not worthy to be compared to the inestimable weight of glory that is to come. And that would be right on. In fact, one of the primary reasons we set the wrong horizon as human beings, is because, like, like C.S. Lewis said, we're far too easily pleased. We settle for the trinkets of this world. We set destinations and depend on our fulfillment and lay all of our hope, push all of our chips on the table and lay them on a single thing and say, this is what I need. This will make me happy. But the greatest achievements that you can imagine. If you could paint your perfect life and you could find it, you would find it wanting. All of the best things that we have to achieve and experience it in life as human beings is not worthy to be compared in the things that are to come, and this is essential. Because oftentimes the temptations that come in life to cut a corner, to go against the grain of love, to sin against the God who made you, are built around these offerings. Do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? What did he lay before them? Things that we can't understand? Desires that only Jesus would have? No. It was food and fame and the riches of the world. Why, why could Jesus turn them down? 
perspective. But that's not what he says here. He goes further. It's significant. It's definitely significant to say what is pales in comparison to what is coming. Okay. Maybe you remember the studies they've done with kindergartners about self-control, where they sit a kindergartner down with a cookie and say, this cookie on the plate, you can eat it. But when I come back, I will bring two cookies, and if you haven't eaten the cookie, you can have them both. Okay. That tension is one that we all understand. Effectively, Paul is saying here, there's no comparison between these things, but he says something more significant. It's not just the rewards of this life pale in comparison to the rewards promised by Jesus. He says the difficulties of this life, the sufferings, the hardships aren't worthy to be compared. In fact, look at the comparison he makes. In both of them, he uses two adjectives. He says that the afflictions of this life are both light and momentary. And he says the glory that is to come is eternal and weighty. Okay? Momentary versus eternal, light versus weighty. Now, that can sound like a fortune cookie. That can sound like um, some sort of positivism or some sort of sugar-coated optimism. Easier to say, harder to believe. But Paul knows what he's talking about when he says that life can be hard. When he says that the afflictions are light and momentary, he's talking in the context of 20 years of following Jesus that he currently bears the scars of. In fact, in chapter 1, these words for eternal and weight for the glory, he uses of his suffering. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, Speaking of what he was going through in the city of Ephesus. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For, so we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Okay, that word for utterly is the Greek word that's equivalent to our English word hyperbole. In fact, it's hyperbole. That's what the Greek word is. We just transliterate it. And the word there for beyond our strength is weighty. And so he looks at his suffering and he says, it was so heavy and so much that we despaired of life itself. We'd rather die than endure. But when we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he places it in the perspective and he says, when you weigh it in the scales of what is to come, even the unendurable weight the unending weight of our suffering is just a light and momentary affliction. Honestly, I think this is something we all understand, whether we'd like to admit it. When we are in the midst of our suffering, it can almost sound offensive to hear things like this. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't know what it feels like. You don't know how long I've been here. How dare you say that it's light? How dare you say that it's momentary? But I want you to reflect on your childhood. And each of us all have those moments in life where we were going through something that we literally thought was going to kill us. For me, for me, it was because I showed up in a class in sixth grade 
And the teacher called all the names of the students. And she didn't call my name. And so I went forward and I said, I don't know why, but I'm not on your list. Can you put me on your list? These were the kids that I had grown up with. These were the kids that I had known. And to be honest, I had shifted schools in between this. This was getting back to the life I loved because the years at the elementary school in between this was hell for me. It was the closest I've ever had to a depression. It was an awful year in fourth and fifth grade. And so I'm excited to get back to the kids that I knew that I grew up with. And I'm sitting in class with them for the first time, and my name's not on the list. So she sends me the principal to find out what happened, and I scored too well on a math test, and they had moved me to another wing with other students. And I went to my parents, and I begged them with tears, please, don't make me do this. Let me retake the test. I can definitely (laughs) do this differently. And like many children did, I cried through the night, and I showed up in that class convinced that I would find a way to fix things. But I'll be honest, as an adult now, I see that thing totally different. My perspective has changed. And it's more than just saying, honestly, it wasn't that big of a deal. The truth is, in some ways, that year was the beginning of my adult life. There are relationships that I formed that year that I still have today. Now, could I see that in the midst? No. Did it feel like a light and momentary thing? No. Did it feel like it was producing something good? No. We all have those experiences that we can reflect back on. When we're a child, we go through, I don't know, a tooth extraction. It feels like the end of our lives. But we look back on it and we go, yeah, it was a bad hour, but it was just an hour among thousands. One of the things Paul says here is that what we go through now is momentary. What is coming is eternal. And eternal makes all of life momentary. Just by a change in duration. One of the things that perspective does is it shapes duration because it becomes relative. What Paul says here is the worst things we go through in life, even if we bear the marks of them every day of our life on earth, it's just the span of a human being. It's just a mere 70 years. It's nothing when compared to eternity. He also says that one is light and one is weighty. One is easy and one is heavy. What he's saying here is at the end, when you put it in the scales, the worst thing you've ever faced, the hardest thing you've ever endured, the most disappointment you've ever experienced, and you set it in the scales against what God is accomplishing in that, by Jesus Christ, through that, it won't even lift the dish. Compared to the eternal weight of God is doing What we're talking about here is a mental inflation that recognizes the eternal significance, the beauty of what God is doing against what you're currently going through. And I want to stress this again. This isn't about being, it's about becoming. Where God is taking you shapes the cost we pay now. But I want you to notice here, he doesn't just contrast them. 
It'd be significant enough. We've already seen that he could have said, the glories of this life aren't worthy to be compared to those. He also could have said, which is not what he says, that the suffering in this life isn't worthy to be compared. He says something more significant than that. Read it with me again. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory. It's not just that it's going to pale in comparison. It's not just that it's no longer a big deal. It's that it's a part of the journey and it's profitable. That there's a direct correlation between the difficulties of this life and the riches of the life to come. Heaven is not some sort of overblown consolation prize because life is hard. The things you're experiencing in your life, the disappointments and the detours and the destructive elements and the mistreatments and the cancers and the sickness, God is fully and utterly capable of using those things to accomplish something good. He says that they're preparing us One of the ways that these things prepare us for the glory that is to come is because they deflate the illusion of the glory that is. C.S. Lewis says this is one of the reasons that we experience pain. Pain shows us the insignificance of things. It shows us that the things that we thought are worthwhile and make life worth living don't always measure up to the difficulties of life. And so it cultivates us in a longing. When we proclaim like the early church did, come Lord Jesus, it's usually because we're no longer satisfied with life as it is. But it's more than that. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 5. He says in verse 3 of chapter 5, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Really? Really, Paul? Now, first off, you have to understand the context here. I can't say that to each and every one of you this morning. I can't just say, hey, buck up, suck up. It's not a big deal. You should be rejoicing. Paul is speaking to a particular audience for a particular reason, and notice what he says in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, He's speaking to those who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have entrusted their future and their lives, their destiny, to Jesus. They can rejoice in their suffering. Why? Because they know that it's not God's punishment. Because they know that Jesus drank every drop of God's wrath for them and that there's nothing left for them. They know that suffering can be significant because Jesus, who suffered greatly, did not suffer meaninglessly. And so since they've been justified, they can rejoice in their suffering. But he still hasn't told us why. He does that next. He says, uh, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces. In the life of a Christian, suffering changes. It becomes significant. It becomes productive. What does it produce? It produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so suffering in the life of a Christian becomes God's tool to accomplish good. 
to bring about that eternal weight of glory. Now, does that mean that naturally suffering is just something God uses? I think that's something we need to be careful of. I think it's something we need to clarify. We can't just take everything we suffer in our life and see it as God's means for renewing us. And the reason I say that is because plenty of suffering in life is self-induced by disobedience. Some of what we experience in life is just the consequence of our own sinful choices. You want to know who makes life the hardest for you? It's you. And so Peter is swift to remind us in 1 Peter chapter 4 that not all suffering is equal. If you want to understand the beauty of suffering, according to the New Testament, 1 Peter is the best place to read. All he talks about from chapter 1 through chapter 5 is suffering. And he runs it through a thousand contexts. But I want you to notice how he affirms and builds on what we've been reading in Paul. Beloved, verse 12 of chapter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and the God and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See the contrast he makes here? Okay. This is this is not just some sort of embracing of pain because pain is productive. It's a recognition that although there is suffering that comes from unrighteousness, that doing the right thing is difficult. And it's hard, but it's worth it. That it's producing something in us. That as Paul said and as Peter says here, when we share in the sufferings of Christ, we also share in the glory that is to come. But there's another aspect of this that we need to catch. Even righteous suffering is not necessarily inherently productive. It needs something else. And this isn't necessarily easy to see here in the English. But notice what he says in verse 18. In fact, let's read 17 again for context. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He says here, as we look, and what it literally says here, because of the tense, because of the way that it's structured, is because we look. Okay? What is it that makes our present tense suffering productive? It's because we're looking at the things that are unseen. Okay? What God is doing in you is truly that. It's a work of God. And when he says here the inner man is being renewed, it's in the passive. It doesn't say while you are renewing your inner man. It says it's being renewed. It's something that's being done to you. But just because it's something that's being done to us doesn't mean there isn't an aspect of our involvement. And what is our job here? What is our involvement? Our involvement is to look to the things that are unseen, to maintain perspective. Interestingly enough, he said something incredibly similar in the last chapter. See if I can find it because this wasn't in my plan. 
Actually, it's in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see the parallel there? What are we looking at, and what is it accomplishing? Here, it's, we're looking at Jesus, and it's accomplishing a transformation. There, we're looking at what is to come, and it's accomplishing productive renewing in our life. Okay? And so, the recognition that we have to make here is that there is a direct correlation between our perspective and its productivity, between our suffering and the way we view it and what it accomplishes. This is why perspective is so important. It is totally possible as Christians to tap out when we suffer, to resist what God is doing, to flee from the goodness of God because it's painful. It's totally possible to despair and to be discouraged and to cry out and say, why is this happening to me? But when we maintain perspective, things change. And so he gives us one last contrast Contrast here, he says in verse 18, is we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Okay? What's right in front of your faces and what isn't. What's visible and what's invisible. What you can experience with your five senses and what is somehow uniquely different than that. As human beings, we tend to value the tangible because we know, because we see because we experience, because we taste, because we touch. But the Bible proclaims that life is more than what we can taste and touch and see and handle. The Bible proclaims that there is something unseen to the world, that God himself is unseen, that his promises are somewhat unseen. In fact, the Bible says that that's an aspect of the way hope works, because what is seen is not hoped for. It doesn't have to be because it's already here. Okay? You can have all the hope in what you want for Christmas, but when you open the package, the hope is gone, whether you got what you wanted or not. And so he contrasts the seen and the unseen, the world as it is right in front of us with its beauties and its blessings and its goodness and the world that is to come, which is unseen which John does his best job to paint a picture for us and go, it's kind of like this. It's mostly like this. If you could get the significance, here's what I'd like you to see. But Paul puts it a little bit differently, and he says, there's no words. It would be a shame to try and articulate these things, he says later in 2 Corinthians. But here's the contrast he makes at the very end of 18. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. The world as you know it, the house that you love, or even the one that you long for, the body that you, you know, have made beautiful through push-ups or Botox, it's transitory. It's not going to last. Or the things that drive you, the things that make life worth living, or the things that you are pushing for and setting all of your stakes in, will they survive your funeral? The world as we know it, the things that we see, it's transitory. And the honest truth is, 
Everybody knows this is the case. That's why all religions have had to have some explanation of significance that goes beyond the seen. Like I said, materialism is just, it's just scientific nihilism. It just says this is all there is, and then because there's no beneath the surface, we might as well try and just manifest from our own being some sense of significance, and even though it's an illusion, we just won't look it in the face. The world that we live in, the unseen, or the seen world is transient, but these unseen things are eternal. Why? Just because we have to have something to hope in as human beings, or we'll all just take our lives? No, because the unseen world is founded on the unseen one. The one whose promises are faithful. The one who, although he is unseen, because no one has seen God, sent Jesus Christ in the flesh. And Jesus made manifest the unseen one who no one has seen. And demonstrated his faithfulness by being faithful to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. While we were the enemies of God, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were rebelling against God, in war against God, he solved the war by sacrificing himself. When it should have been us who waved the white flag of surrender against a power who was not only greater than us, but also the only one in the right, he surrendered himself. Faith is not blind, but it does go beyond what is seen on the basis of what is seen. If you're a Christian, you have beholded Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that past tense fact affirms and defines a future tense fate. And when you string your life between those two facts, it gives you perspective. It changes the decisions you make. It changes every day when you can say thank you or when you curse God. It changes the things that you're willing to bear shame for, be persecuted for, stand up for. And there's always this worry, there's always this concern that if we focus on heaven, that we'll neglect the realities of earth. And I would just say, that's not what we see in the New Testament. Yes, there are some things in life that will lose their significance in the comparison of heaven, but people never will. Because people are eternal beings with eternal destinies. And so the way we treat them now, and the way we love them now, and the way we show Jesus to them now is of eternal consequence. Some of the things in life become more valuable when you understand their significance, not less. Perspective is not just about this life doesn't matter, just find a place to lock down, hunker down, and wait for Jesus to return. Every single time Jesus talks about his coming in the Gospels, he gives two applications, and they are not contradictory. Wait, which literally means to look, to watch, and work. Be about it. As Paul says here, the things that are around us, that are seen, are transitory. There is something better yet to come. But when it comes, it also implies an ending. 
perspective. Let's pray. Father, our greatest need this morning, the one that will lead to the most satisfaction in you, the most productivity in our life, the greatest experience of transformation is to forsake all of these penultimate hopes, to put them in the perspective of our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ, to be reunited to you, to be conformed finally and completely into your image, to live in a world that is renewed, where not just the toxin of sin, but the scars of sin itself will be wiped away. But there's so many other things that have our hearts. There's so many times where we say in our thought life, in what we long for, in our actions, in our decisions, is this is where the finish line is. If I only had, if I only arrive, if I only achieve, if these circumstances would only change, then life would be as it should be. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us the falseness of those hopes, that you would shatter every idol that's taken our heart. Not that you would leave us despairing, but that we would reset our hope on a hope unshakable. Of a city not built by hands, whose foundation is sound. On Jesus, who achieved exactly God's will. Who is faithful, even when we are faithless. And who has demonstrated his good intentions by giving himself fully and completely to us despite the fact that our intentions are not always good. God, make us a people who long, who long for heaven. Not just because it's an end of our pain, but because it's the beginning of the fullness of knowing and walking with you. I ask that you'd accomplish this in Jesus' name. Amen.